The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, Psalm 7, a meditation of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me, lest they tear me like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is iniquity in my hands, if I have repaid evil, to him who was at peace with me, or have plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust, Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. So the congregation of the peoples shall surround you. For their sakes, therefore, return on high. The Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity within me. O oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My defense is of God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. He does not turn back. He will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Okay, we are in Deuteronomy 12. It's verses 1 through 7. This is entitled, The Place Where the Lord Your God Chooses, Part 1. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. Then you shall rejoice in all which you have put your hand, you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Paul says that the law was given as a tutor to lead people to Jesus Christ. Thus, in the giving of the law to Israel, they were being educated on what is right and what is wrong, but in a way that will eventually lead them to a fuller understanding of what God is like and of what he expects from his people. 
This is done in such a way that we are to find Christ Jesus in the giving of this law and then to respond by coming to him. We can discover not only what God is like because he is the embodiment of the unseen God, but how to properly worship him. As this is so, then the form of worship given in the Old Testament via the Old Covenant cannot be the full expression of how to worship God. In fact, in coming to Christ, we can find out what was actually lacking in the mode and means of service to the Lord in the law. This does not mean that the law is imperfect, but it is, in fact, incomplete. Because of this, it is not considered faultless by the author of Hebrews. This is not because what is given in the law is faulty, but because we are. The incomplete nature of the service of the Lord under the law highlighted this. Thus, this service of the Lord is only an anticipatory step towards a full, perfect, and final form of worship that will be sufficient to please God for all of eternity. Jesus tells us of this in John chapter 4. That's our text verse for today. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The implements of worship under the Old Covenant are explicitly said by Paul and by the author of Hebrews to be mere shadows of the heavenly things. Those heavenly things are found in Christ Jesus alone. Therefore, in coming to Christ, we then have everything necessary to be pleasing to God in our mode and means of worship. This is the beauty and the marvel of Jesus Christ. All of the sufficiency for us to be pleasing to God and to continue to be pleasing to God for all of eternity is found in Him. Let us remember this as we continue on through this magnificent body of literature, wisdom, and wonder that we call the Law of Moses. As breathtaking and beautiful as it is, it is only a stepping stone to that which is more marvelous and fully complete, because it is Jesus Christ alone who can perfect us and bring us to completion in Him. This is a wonderful truth that is to be found in His superior Word. And so, let us turn to that precious Word once again, and may God speak to us through His Word today, and may His glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the mode and the means. It's verses 1 through 4. Verse 1, these are the statutes and judgments. Ele ha-chukim mishpatim These, the statutes and the judgments. Concerning where we are now in Deuteronomy, Albert Barnes correctly notes the following. Moses now passes on to apply Deuteronomy 12 through 26, the leading principles of the Decalogue, to the ecclesiastical, civil, and social life of the people. Particulars will be noticed which are unique to the law as given in Deuteronomy, and even in laws repeated from the earlier books, various new circumstances and details are introduced. This is only natural. The Senatic legislation was nearly 40 years old and had been given under conditions of time, 
place, and circumstance different and distant from those now present. Yet, the synaptic system, far from being set aside or in any way abrogated, is on the contrary throughout presupposed and assumed. Its existence and authority are taken as the starting point for what is here prescribed, and an accurate acquaintance with it on the part of the people is taken for granted. If you don't understand what he was just saying, he's saying that the law given at Mount Sinai is the basis for what he is saying, and the people take everything that was given in the law of Sinai as an axiom. They understand it, they know that it exists, and he's just working on from that first initial point. He's building up his theology for the people. In other words, what was given at Sinai is being supplemented now by Moses' words in Deuteronomy, but it complements that law. It in no way contradicts it or sets it aside. Further, it is taken as an axiom that what was given at Sinai is perfectly understood by those now receiving Deuteronomy. Therefore, both the law received from Sinai and that which is now being added to it for Israel's instruction is that, verse 1 continues, which you shall be careful to observe. Asher tishmerun la'asot, which you all shall be certainly careful to observe. This is the fourth and last time in the book of Deuteronomy that this word shamar, meaning to keep, is accentuated with a paragogic nun. It's a letter at the end of it to provide further stress. Now, it may seem nitpicky to talk about things like this, but considering the outcome of not heeding it reveals it is not. This accentuation on the word Shamar is found these four times in the book of Deuteronomy, and guess what? It is only one more time in all of the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 17, the words we are now evaluating are cast back in the face of disobedient Israel at a time just after the northern tribes were exiled to Assyria. The point of giving the law by Moses before I go on is that the people will listen to the law of Moses. They will pay heed and they will be obedient to the Lord. If they are not, what is the result? Punishment and exile. Four times he said this word with that nun at the end of it. The word tishmerun. It's the word shamar, but he says tishmerun. One more time in the Old Testament, it is said. We're going to read that now. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, you shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord, who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, here it is, this word, Tishmerun, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I have made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did even to this day. Israel was not careful to observe, and the woes that came upon them as a people were a self-inflicted wound. 
One letter of accentuation tucked onto the end of this word reveals much more than one might normally think of is any instructive value at all. Verse 1 continues, In the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess. Moses goes from the plural to the singular in this clause. He is speaking to the nation as a whole. In the land which giving Jehovah God your singular, fathers to you singular, to possess. Using the word ha'aretz, or the land, Moses reminds Israel that Jehovah isn't just a new God that they have recently conjured up out of their own heads, but that he is the same God that appeared to their fathers, made sure promises to them, and has kept those promises by now bringing Israel into Canaan. It is a land they are given to possess, verse 1 continues, all the days that you live on the earth. Now he is speaking to the people of the nation. All the days which you all live upon the earth. The change in the pronoun, back to the plural, should alert the people that individual obedience is expected and needed for national Israel to succeed. Here, Moses uses the word ha'adama, or the earth. The Lord God of the fathers is giving Israel the land. Thus, the people of Israel are to observe the words of the Lord as long as they live on the earth. One can see that the land is given to the nation, but the possession of the land is conditional. The changes in the pronouns and in the description of the object are subtle, but they are very important. Moses will now continue with specific statutes and judgments explaining just what is necessary for obedience. Verse 2, you shall utterly destroy. The words are highly emphatic, both repeating the word abad, or destroy, and adding again another accentuated letter to the end of the word, abed te abedun, destroying you shall utterly destroy. That's the force of it, okay? That's a paraphrase, but that's the force of what he is saying. It is as if Moses is saying, take these things, smash them, grind them to powder, and then burn them. Let nothing of them remain. And the objects of the destruction are, verse 2 going on, all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods. Wherever the people served their gods, there was to be a complete destruction of both the mode and the means of worship. Moses will detail those things as he continues. As he is speaking to the people in the plural, you all, I would personally translate this as peoples instead of nations. Moses is comparing the people of Israel to the peoples who inhabit the land. They do these things, you all are to do this thing. The modes of worship include, verse 2 going on, on the high mountains and on the hills. These are singled out because they are the obvious places to get nearer to God who is up there. It is understood from Scripture that God is in the heavens. It is also understood, using the same word, that the heavens are above. The obvious thought then is, if we go up higher, we can be closer to God. This was seen in the building of the Tower of Babel. It is seen throughout all of the Old Testament where the people of Canaan and the people of Israel all went to the high places to make sacrifices and offerings. As this is where people went to worship their false gods, those places were to be destroyed. Jesus later came and gave instruction concerning such places as we saw in our text verse from John 4. Serving God on a mountain, even that mountain on which the temple once stood and on which a temple will stand again someday, 
is lacking in comparison to worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Verse 2 continues, and under every green tree, vetachat ka'etz ra'anan, and under all tree green. Here's a new word, ra'anan. It comes from an unused root, meaning to be green, and so it is by analogy new, or figuratively prosperous. In regard to the symbolism, John Lang may be right when he says the following. It is not truly the vivid fullness of color, but the mysterious rustling of the foliage which comes into view here. As in the high places, it is the all-overpowering elements of air and light. One can think of witches casting their spells under the heavy oaks, or of the hippies hanging out and burning incense under them. Even Buddha supposedly found his illumination under the Bodhi tree. In such places, people naturally tend to feel closer to the gods or spirits that the mind conjures up. From the modes of worship, Moses next turns to the means. Verse 3, And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods. These are the ways in which the people serve their false gods, building them altars, erecting pillars to them, and carving images of them. Any of these things can be seen even today as one travels through Asia. There is no sense in the mind, but simply an effort to connect with the divine through the things that the hands have fashioned. The words translated as burn and cut down both contain the same accentuation as in the previous verses. Last week in verse 1128, we reviewed a departure from the precept of the first commandment. Now, of these words so far, we can see the formal point of the law, the second commandment, being fleshed out in what we are looking at. From Exodus 20, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There is a right way to worship and serve the Lord, and there are all other ways, each being wrong. The right way is defined in the word. The wrong ways are presented as well. Israel was given the word, they were given the admonitions and warnings in the word, and they were to pay heed to those things. Moses is adamant concerning the necessary actions to be taken by the people. This was to ensure Moses' next words, verse 3 going on, and destroy their names from that place. Here we see an immediate transition from the second commandment to the third. He's going down the commandments if you're following along. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For I, the Lord, will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In retaining and following after the names of the false gods, the name of Jehovah will, by default, be taken in vain. The word translated as destroy signifies to perish. Thus, this can be taken in various ways. It can mean to change in order to eliminate. For example, one can change the name of a person or a place or something else from the name of a pagan god to something else. Gideon is known in the book of Judges as Jerubbaal because of his actions against the false god Baal. Later in 2 Samuel 11 verse 21, Joab calls him Jerubbeshet. 
in this, it is a literal fulfillment of this precept now being given. He didn't want to call him Jerubbaal because it's invoking the name of a false god, and so he calls him Jerubbeshet. This is seen elsewhere as well. It can also mean to literally destroy the thing that bears the name of something else, such as a false god. The names of the gods will remain as long as the images remain. The minds of the people would be polluted with these things, and temptations would set in. When things didn't go well for someone, the natural inclination would be to try another god and see if it could help. The Old Testament is filled with examples of this, as is our own society today. There are palm readers in most towns, there are readers of tarot cards, there are spiritualists from every odd religion one can think of at every turn down every new road. One must consider that if the law was able to make a person holy, there would be no need to remove all these false gods. Think of it. We're holy because of Jesus Christ, right? The Bible never says for us to get rid of all the false gods in our towns, okay? We are made holy a different way. In being holy, there would be no need to worry about seeking that which is false. But the very fact that Israel is asked to remove these things demonstrates that the inclination of the heart is and remains flawed under the law. Everybody seeing it? Verse 4, you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Lo ta'asun ken Yehovah Elohechem. No, you shall certainly do so Yehovah your God. Again, Moses provides an accentuation in the word translated as you shall do. One can see the firm sternness in his words as he speaks out the command of the Lord. By including the accentuation in the written commands, it is a call to strict attention and obedience. To fail in regard to this can only mean disaster for the people. And they cannot say that they were unaware of either the precept or the stress provided in the giving of it. This is because the law was meticulously kept and maintained. And further, this law was to be read to all of the assembled people once every seven years. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 31. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests. Now remember, he just wrote this law and he's got all of these ends at the end of all these words. They're accentuations and his voice is actually ringing out as he's writing it. When you read something like that, we put an exclamation point at the end of a sentence and we see there's emphasis. That's what this paragogic nun is. It's an accentuation. Now listen to what he's doing here. He delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing." Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you crossed the Jordan to possess. As the law is being read to the people, even as infrequently as every seven years, they would hear these emphases and accentuations provided by Moses' hand, and they would understand the weight of them. And more, not only were the people to be made aware of them, but the ruler of the land was to be intimately familiar with them as well. He was accountable according to the law from Deuteronomy 17. 
Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Safeguards for both common people and the leaders were set in place, but following the commands implied that those responsible for ensuring they were known in the first place were actually transmitting that knowledge to those who needed to know them. In other words, if Bibles were in short supply, as was the case for most of the church history, and as is the case in many parts of the world today, the weight of conveying what is expected of the church is placed upon the few who have a copy of it. Such a person may fail to convey the word at all, or he may be either incompetent in the word or purposely manipulative of the word. If so, the people, although still accountable for their actions, will never know what is correct. I give this lesson every time we have a Bible study. Read your Bible. The ideas still apply today, even though there are Bibles in pretty much every house that wants one. This is for a few reasons. One is that people have lives to live, and taking time to learn sound theology is long, difficult, and mentally laborious as a task. It is one that few people are actually geared for, even of those who are in the ministry of the word. Secondly, there is a lack of caring by those who do have time to at least minimally train themselves in the word. In other words, the electrician or stockbroker actually does have a life beyond his job and his other responsibilities. He may not have time to get a degree from a sound seminary, but he does have time at least to read his Bible. How do we know this? I'm talking to my brother. He's an electrician here. It is because he has time to watch TV every day of his life. He has time to go to the movies. Well, before COVID-19 closed all the movie theaters. He has time to play on the internet, watch sports, read a book, go fishing, lay on the beach and get a suntan or whatever other thing will fill his free time. These things are certain. If he has time to do any or all of these things throughout the week, guess what he has time to do? He has time to read his Bible. And even if he doesn't really like to read, he can listen to an online Bible. These things cannot be denied. You know how I know? Because I have an online Bible in my car, and that's all that ever plays. It goes around and around and around and around. I'll wear it out someday, and I'll have to get a new CD player. But I have time to do it, and I know you do too. And I don't drive a lot, and I go through that Bible a couple times a year. I drive very, very little. And so, even if not trained as a minister of the word, he can at least be learned enough in order to know it when something doesn't sound right or something smells fishy in the theology that is presented. The precept of the words of Moses now, you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things, actually extends into our modern life. We cannot worship the Lord properly unless we know how to properly worship the Lord. And that cannot occur unless we are made aware of that through the knowledge of his precious and sacred word. Is worshiping the Lord through the infinite number of images of Roman Catholicism acceptable? Is worshiping him through modern prophets and seers acceptable? Is it acceptable for a congregation to sit under the authority of Joyce Myers or Beth Moore? How can we know? To where do we go to find out? 
for Israel under the law? It was first to Moses and then to those sanctioned by the Lord to continue carrying forward the word to the people. The Lord even gave safeguards concerning those later speakers and writers to determine if they conveyed the truth or not. We'll come to some of those safeguards in the next chapter of Deuteronomy. Until then, the words continue through Moses' instruction and exhortation towards the people. Are you schooled in the word of God? If yes, to what extent is it so? Do you meditate on the word in this world that you trod? Or without considering it, is it off to the beach you go? What do you do when someone says to you, send in your tithes and you will be blessed? Do you send him your cash? Is this what you do? Sending it to that guy who is so lavishly dressed? Is that what God wants for you in your walk with him? Paying off someone else so that you too will be rich? If that's what you think, your theology is dark and grim. You have been duped by the deceiver's pitch. And it's all because you neglected the word. Instead, you trusted in that nutty thing that you heard. Our second thought today, and you shall rejoice. It's verses 5 through 7. Verse 5, but you shall seek the place. Ki'im el ha-makom, for if unto the place. It is a literal way of saying what we would translate with a word such as but, rather, or instead. You are not to do this. On the other hand, this is what you are to do. You are to go, verse 5 continues, where the Lord your God chooses. Asher yivchar Yehovah Elohechem, which chooses Yehovah, your plural, all you people, your God. In other words, this is being set in contrast to verse 2. The peoples in Canaan made up false gods in their minds. They did this either by seeing nature, say, a high place or under a tree, and then worshiping what their minds decided upon in that location. Or they made a god for a need, such as a fertility idol, and then they went to the place that fit that need where they could worship their fertility god. Either way, the people of Israel were forbidden from doing this. They could not go up on a mountain and say, I'm going to worship Jehovah here because I'm closer to him. Nor could they make an idol, call it Jehovah, and place it in a spot they thought reflected him and say, this is how I will worship Jehovah. They could not draw closer to him anywhere they went because he is spirit, and thus he is everywhere at all times. And they could not rightly worship him by making something they thought reflected him because he transcends his creation. Nothing can compare to him. Therefore, they could only approach him in the manner he determined and in the place that he chose for them to do so. And that choice was not to be in all of their tribes, but from, verse 5 continues, out of all your tribes. Nikal shivtechem, from all your tribes. The word from here signifies out of, and the word shevet, or tribe, signifies more of a political than a genealogical arrangement. The Lord would choose a single spot that stemmed from one tribe of the political arrangement of Israel. Verse 5 continues, to put his name for his dwelling place. Lasum et shemo sham le to set his name there to his residence. Here is a word found only this one time in scripture, the noun sheken. It signifies a residence, coming from the common verb shakan, meaning to settle down or dwell or abide. It thus speaks of the place of the tabernacle. Of these words, Charles Ellicott rightly states, the very form of the order provides its antiquity. 
no one who was acquainted with the removal of that place from Shiloh to Nov, from Nov to Gibeon, from Gibeon to Jerusalem, could have written with such utter unconsciousness of later history as these words imply. In other words, this is not something that somebody made up 450 years later. This is written by one person looking forward into the future. The obvious question is, if the Lord is spirit and thus everywhere, then why can't the people worship the Lord anywhere? And if the tabernacle is a part of creation and nothing in creation can fully express the Lord, then how can the words here help the situation? The questions are valid, and the answer is multi-layered. First, the Lord is everywhere, and yet he has presented himself in many locations as is revealed in Scripture. Remember, he walked up to Abraham, right, as testified also to by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Secondly, the Lord was worshipped in those places, both with and without the tabernacle, and thus he can be worshipped anywhere except during the dispensation of the law and or as explicitly commanded or authorized by the Lord. Thirdly, in regard to the tabernacle and the temple, although those are fabricated things, they reveal minutely and exactingly spiritual truths that point to the nature of God in Christ. I'm going to stop right there. This past week, does anybody know what they found in Israel? A piece of cloth that was a certain color? Anybody? Purple. Purple. What is the word in Hebrew? And I'll give you a Maserati. Argamon. Every single word in Exodus, when that tabernacle was being constructed, every single word, every single color, every single material, every single measurement, everything pointed to Jesus Christ. Amen. Everything. If you didn't watch those sermons, it's time for you to go back and watch them. And you will see the word Argamon points to Christ in one way. The other colors point to him in other ways. Everything. Every single detail of those points to Jesus Christ. And until you know that, you can't understand why Moses could say what he's saying right here. That was revealed, as I just said, in the Exodus sermons that dealt with the construction of the tabernacle. And then in the other sermons from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers that dealt with the appointed feasts and so on. This was alluded to earlier when I brought up Paul and the author of Hebrews. Citing them now will help. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Christ is the antitype. The tabernacle was a type which pointed to him. And then in Colossians 2, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. If you go worshiping like the Hebrew Roots Movement people do, all of these Sabbath observance and not eating pork, you're following the shadow. And guess what? If you have a shadow, you get nothing. But if you follow Christ, you get Christ and you get the shadow. You get everything. And it goes on, Hebrews 10, verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. But the blood of Christ can make you perfect. 
Something had to be given for the service and worship of God in Christ during the time of tutoring so that when he came, these things could be understood. This is the mode and means by which it was to be conducted. This is certain because of many Old Testament verses. For example, the Lord allowed an offering to be made for him by the parents of Samson even though it was not at the tabernacle. Does everybody remember that? Here it is. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering. Now he is doing this and he's not doing what the law of Moses said, right? He's not down at the temple. Why can he do this and it not be wrong? Read on. And offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as the flame went toward heaven from the altar the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. The Lord was present to accept what the shadow only anticipated. And more, we see a marvelous example of this truth when Solomon went to petition the Lord. It says in 2 Chronicles 1, And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the fathers' houses, then Solomon and all the assembly went with him. They went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tabernacle of meeting with God was there, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hor, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought him there. So you got the ark in Jerusalem, and they're going up to Gibeon where the altar is. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Though the ark was at Jerusalem, the tabernacle was still in Gibeon. This included the altar of burnt offering that was still there. The implication is that a sacrifice was necessary to come before God. And so even the ark that was in Jerusalem, in order to come before the Lord, they still had to go to Gibeon. The order of service and worship had to be followed because the typology of those things anticipated Jesus Christ. Can any person who is not found in Jesus Christ be heard by God? No, your sins have separated you, so your God cannot hear, the Bible says. You must go through a sacrifice first. He is our sacrifice. And once you've called on Jesus, you now have free and unfettered access before God. And that's the typology that we're seeing right here from 2 Chronicles. Solomon knew that he couldn't inquire of God because he had no sacrifice to present. The order of service and worship had to be followed because the typology of those things anticipated Christ. But Jehovah, God incarnate, meaning Christ, stood there before the parents of Samson. Thus their offering was accepted. What this is teaching us, remember, the law is a tutor for us. It is for Israel and it is for the whole world to read and understand is that no man may come before God without a sacrifice. And that sacrifice must be Christ Jesus the Lord. And when Christ the Lord is there before us, our sacrifices are acceptable to God. He is the place where the Lord your God has chosen to place his name. Until he came, he was to be sought by Israel at the earthly shadow of him, meaning the tabernacle. As Moses says, verse 5 continues, and there you shall go. 
Ubatashama, and you, singular, shall go there. The pronoun in this one clause suddenly goes from the plural to the singular, which hasn't been since the middle clause of verse 1. In this it says, you, Israel, shall seek and you shall go. The question then is, is Moses speaking to Israel as a nation, or is he going from you all in general to you, the individual? He could be looking at the whole and waving his hands, saying, all of you shall seek and you, Israel, shall go. Or he could be waving his arm across the masses and saying, you all shall seek, and then pointing at each person, and you, and you, and you, and you shall go. Either way, the change is so sudden and so abrupt that no one would miss the importance of it. Probably what is true is that it signifies both. There is the national salvation of Israel that awaits them coming to Christ as a unified people, but there is also individual salvation of Israel where each must come to Christ apart from any other. Both are true for this uniquely called group of people. Verse 6, there you shall take your burnt offerings. The olah, or burnt offering, was minutely detailed in the book of Leviticus, every single detail of which pointed to Christ the Lord. These were shadows of truths that only anticipated him. If you have not watched the Leviticus sermons, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. If you have, then you know that every single part of every single animal, every way that the animal was processed, where the blood was taken at certain times for certain sacrifices, all of it points to Jesus Christ. Verse 6 continues, your sacrifices. The zebach or sacrifice, was also carefully laid out, mostly in Leviticus. Again, every detail of which pointed to Christ the Lord. They were, likewise, shadows anticipating the substance. Verse 6, your tithes. The masur, or tithes for Israel, were introduced in Leviticus. They were further defined in Numbers, and they will be lastly and more fully explained only in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Unless you are well-schooled in the Bible, have had a really thorough instructor in the past, or you have attended the superior word for some time, the ties probably do not mean what you think they mean. Stay tuned. Coming soon to a Deuteronomy 14 sermon near you. I typed it this past week. Okay, you'll all get it in 10 weeks if we're still here. The number 10 in scripture signifies the perfection of divine order. The 10th or tithe represents the whole of what is due from man to God. It is a mark of his claim on the whole. Thus, the tithes anticipate the Messiah who would mark his claim on the whole of his redeemed. Verse 6 continues, the heave offerings of your hand. The terumah, or heave offering, was evaluated in detail in Leviticus. It anticipates the coming of Messiah, and all such offerings are fulfilled in him. Verse 6 continues, your vowed offerings, and your vows. There are vows and there are offerings that accompany vows. All such things rightfully belonged before the Lord at the location where he chose to place his name. They all anticipate Christ, and he is the fulfillment of the reception of all such things as is recorded elsewhere. Verse 6 continues, your freewill offerings. The Nedevah, or freewill offering, was discussed in detail in Leviticus. Every point and part of that detail anticipated the coming of Christ. The shadows point to the substance found in him. So far, I've listed, what, four things? It probably took us 45 sermons to get through those four things, maybe more. But you will be blessed knowing every single detail. A portion of fat is cut off of a liver, and it's put on the altar. Why? 
because it points to Christ. Verse 6 continues, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. The presentation of these firstborn is discussed in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Each presentation made in this practice was a shadowy type of the coming of Christ. Of these offerings, Moses next, maybe surprisingly, if you are unaware of it, says, get ready, what did we just read? Your offerings, your sacrifices, your vows, your tithes. Verse 7, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God. That'll give you a little hint as to what's coming. As this was the final verse of sermon typing day, and as it made me hungry, I went to get a plate full of cheese and crackers to finish things up. Now, I normally will not eat during sermon typing. I start at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I go until 3, usually 4 o'clock. I don't eat. But I made an exception because it was, in fact, the last verse. I found myself surrounded by little dogs as I sat down to type. The force of the words is that they are referring to the contents of the previous verse. In other words, those things, all of them, including, guess what, the ties that are presented to the Lord are at least in part, and unless forbidden due to the nature of the sacrifice, eaten by the offerer. Keep that in mind as we continue through the next few chapters. In eating, there was to be an accompanied state of life, attitude, and mind. Verse 7 going on, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households. The verb samach, or rejoice, has only been seen once so far. That was in Leviticus chapter 23, while referring to the Feast of Tabernacles. Being the book of Deuteronomy, one would not normally expect to find the state of rejoicing being brought up. And yet, this word will be found nine times before the book closes out. Another new and somewhat rare word comes in the verse as well, mishloach. It signifies an outstretching. In other words, what the hand has reached out and grabbed, thus here in this verse, it is an undertaking. With such a Christological passage, and I know I didn't get into it. I just told you where to go to get into it, meaning those sermons from Leviticus and even Exodus and Numbers. It's such a Christological passage if you know what he's talking about here. All right? As such a Christological passage as we have seen today, and in conjunction with so many offerings that clearly point to Christ Jesus, it is not at all surprising that the word rejoice would be planted right here for the first time in the book. There was the putting forth of one's hand that resulted in taking an offering of some type, implying that the offering was available, you can't offer if you don't have the offering, and also that it served a purpose for the good of the one offering it. The people went to the place where the Lord had chosen, and there they were to be thankful for what the sacrifice or offering implied, as these things anticipated the coming of Messiah. And as we have the fullness of those types and shadows in him, then indeed, how much more should we rejoice in an even greater way than Israel did? We have the spiritual fullness of what these earthly things only looked forward to. Those are things, verse 7 finishes with, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Once again, then to close us out, Moses goes from the plural back to the singular. He's been speaking to the people, you all, but now he speaks to the nation, which has blessed you, singular, Israel, Jehovah, your singular God. It is a national blessing of the people whose God is the Lord. The rejoicing was to occur because of the blessing. The blessing came because of God's favor in Christ. For Israel, it was in anticipation of him. For us, it is looking back on him and what he has done. If one can shake his head and marvel at how Israel failed in these things, 
then how much more should we shake our heads at our own failures in them? The words, you shall rejoice, are to be taken as a positive command. You're going to do these things, folks. The people were not to be grumpy over what they did not have. They were not to be covetous of those who had something more, something better, or something different. Instead, they were to be grateful, and they were to actively rejoice in that. As we have the spiritual fullness of what these things anticipated, then how can we be miserable about the countless things that we allow to get us down? How can we do it? There isn't a thing on this planet that we will take with us to our heavenly dwelling. There isn't a single earthly thing that we possess that cannot be taken from us. But we possess what is worth more than the value of the entire world. And it can never be taken from us. In understanding that, how can we allow ourselves to be shaken, anxious, depressed, miserable, or woeful? Yes, it does happen, but why? It is because we take our eyes off of the prize. We lose sight of the heavenly calling, and in our own pity party, we forget that the Lord of creation stepped out of his glory and humbled himself among us in order to bring us back to himself. Let us do our utmost to fix our eyes on him, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the place where the Lord our God has chosen his name for a dwelling. So he has done. And for this, let us praise him to the glory of God the Father. With every sunset, you give me rest. With every sunrise, you bring new hope. With every rain, you quench my thirst. With every rainbow, you paint your love. With every breath, I know I live. By loving wonders of your grace, I ask, what else, Lord, do I need when I see scars upon your hands? That was written by my friend Isabella Bednara. She writes me these poems and she sends them to me. And sometimes I find myself sitting there crying at the computer. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Everything that we have seen in these passages from Genesis 1-1 until today, everything points to Jesus Christ. Every story, every part of everything points to him. And people want to go back to this law, this, this law which is not faultless, according to the author of Hebrews, and they want to try to earn their way to God through observance of this law. It's distasteful, it is bad theology, and it is disgraceful to the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. He came and he lived the perfect life that we cannot live. He gave up that perfect life in exchange for our sins. Charlie Garrett's sins, that's a big weight upon his shoulder, I'll tell you that. He went into the grave with our sins, and he came out of the grave without our sins. In this, he proved that he is God because only God could do that. He proved that he had no sin of his own because the wages of sin is death. If he had one sin, one small little sin in his life, he would have been in that grave to this day. But he came out, and the only thing that's left in that grave is your sin. If you have called on Jesus Christ, please make it today. You don't know what tomorrow holds. He's a loving God. Everything he does is for the benefit of his people, and yet we turn our backs on him. We shamefully reject him. We try to earn his favor in other ways than the grace that is offered. Let us not do these things. Let us be good to God by believing in what he has done. And then tell other people about it. We got a track rack full. I filled it up this past week after mentioning it a week or two ago that it hadn't been emptied in a while. It was kind of empty last week, so I filled it up. Please empty it out. 
Somebody emailed me and he said, would you send me some tracks? Here you go, buddy. Hand them out. I said, it's okay if it has superior word on the back. Oh, that's fine. I said, then here they come. Do your part. The world is coming to an end, and I don't think it's going to be very long. Amen. I've got a closing verse here for you from Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. There's an article in front of the word cross, even in the Greek, to show the utterly shameful nature of the way Christ died for our sins. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Next week is Deuteronomy 12. It's verses 8 through 19. I told you 22. It's 19. We don't want to hear no dismissals or refuses. Instead, you shall go to where he tells you to. It's entitled, The Place Where the Lord Your God Chooses. Part 2. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> That'll be our 40th Deuteronomy sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Now, I have a question before we read our poem and take the Lord's Supper. Anybody gets this, has a choice at a high-fashion sports car over there, take home, give to your grandchild. I don't see any kids here, so they, they're not going to win. Let's see here. We mentioned ties today, Okay. We'll mention them a lot in Deuteronomy 14, but we mentioned ties today. What two contexts are ties mentioned in the New Testament? Two contexts. I've said this in 4,000 Bible studies. Somebody's got to know this. You're looking for verse, right? No, I'm looking for the context. What is the context where the word tithe is mentioned? I can even give you a hint. They're in Luke and Hebrews. What not to do in the... Uh, Pharisees, that's one. You get one more and you got it. Hebrews. It's fulfilled in Christ. And he uses it as an example of giving 10% to Melchizedek. Okay, Jody's going to get it. You helped her out, but she's going to get it. You get a, a high-end sports car here from uh, from our friends Tom and Stacy. And um, uh, it is... You're correct. It's Luke when he, he chastises the Pharisees. You tithe in mint, dill, and cumin, but you forgot the greater and weightier things of the law. That's the first one. The second one is that Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, which is a descriptive passage. It doesn't prescribe anything. You can't use that as the law first mentioned and be tithes out of your congregation, okay? But having said that, he makes a point that, that the Levites received tithes from Israel. Well, Levi is in the loins of Abraham. So Levi actually gave tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. So the people of Israel are tithing through their great-great-great-grandfather. Okay, that is the point. Okay, the place where the Lord your God chooses. 
These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe as if the highest worth in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. If not, you and the Lord shall be at odds and you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars and burn their wooden images with fire. They are a disgrace. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses. It shall be so out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. There you shall take your burn offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks there in the land. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, so you shall do, you and your households in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this marvelous passage from Deuteronomy. Thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. And thank you, Lord, for the law of Moses, which is a part of your sacred word. Thank you for every single word of instruction you've given us out of this beautiful book, the Holy Bible, which you so lovingly gave to the people of the world to seek you out. And yet we just ignore it. We shun it. We reject it. We say this applies and this doesn't, and I'm going to do what I want, and I'm going to pick and choose. Forgive us for our sins in doing this, Lord, and help us to be obedient to your word in the context in which it is presented. And help us to never fall back on this law, which was so wonderfully and graciously fulfilled for us by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for that, which he did, so that we are free from that and can live in the grace that you have provided through him. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.